And as you're taking your seat, go ahead and grab your Bible, and you can open up to the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, if you're looking for Ecclesiastes, it's kind of near the middle of your Bible, so you can kind of split it right in the middle, and you'll probably land in the book of Psalms. Following Psalms is Proverbs, and then right after Proverbs is the book of Ecclesiastes, and it falls into the category of wisdom literature. It's a fascinating book, and it's a book that deals with, really, the complexities of life. It deals with the immense tensions that exist in life. It, exi- it deals, excuse me, with all that takes place in our lives and some of the most important questions, in fact, the most important questions that anybody who lives on this planet can ask. And more than that, it deals with the questions that every person should ask. Leo Tolstoy, the famous Russian novelist, once wrote these words. He said, my question That, which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions. Lying in the soul of every man from the foolish child to the wisest elder, it was a question without an answer to which one cannot live, as I had found by experience. It was, what will come of what I am doing today or shall do tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Differently expressed, the question is, why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? can also be expressed thus, he says, is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? The questions that are asked and answered in some ways throughout the book of Ecclesiastes are incredibly important. Who are we? Why are we here? What does it all mean? And what is the outcome? And what if it actually means nothing at all? What if there's no point to any of this? What if my existence is simply hollow and empty and utterly meaningless in the long run? How then do I live this day or any day after? There is much tension and confusion in the world around us when it comes to these questions, and they remain for every human being for all time the most important and foundational questions that we can ask if we are to experience and to live a meaningful life the way that God has designed. The world seeks for meaning, and the world struggles to find it, and if we're honest, every single one of us does the same, or if you haven't yet, you need to start. The book of Ecclesiastes is going to help us navigate the confusion of life. It's going to help us interpret, if I can put it this way, life outside of the classroom, outside of some philosophical conversation that you have in a clinical setting. In other words, it helps us look at and consider and ponder life as it really is. And right out of the gate, it's going to force us to consider one simple question. Really, this is the dominating question of the entire book, but it will be the dominating question for the passage of Scripture this morning that we look at in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, and that's simply this. What's the point? What is the point? When everything kind of boils down to the foundational level, what is the point? Maybe it's a question you've heard yourself ask. Maybe it's something you're thinking even this morning. It's something that we must consider deeply, and that's what the author of Ecclesiastes wants for us. That's what the Spirit of God wants for us. Let's read chapter 1, verses 1 through 11 together. Beginning in verse 1, it says this, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. 
Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing it, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things, yet to be among those who come after. What starts off... This book is incredibly gripping. It confronts us in such a unique and powerful way. In some senses, it pushes us into a place of skepticism and pessimism, and and maybe it even pushes us into a place of despair as we read these words. It definitely leaves us asking this question, doesn't it? What's the point? If all of this is true, what's the point? That's the question that we need to ask as we move through this passage. And as we do that, we're going to look at different aspects of life, and we're going to see if it helps us to answer that question, what's the point? And the first thing the preacher does here is he reminds us that life is meaningless. You're like, wow, this is off to a really good start. Happy New Year. Verse 1 tells us that these are the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, historically, the preacher has been identified as what you might assume, which is Solomon. For centuries and even the first millennia of the church, Solomon was identified as this great preacher, the person who writes um, as the sole ruler of the, the kingdom of Israel in the 10th century BC. He ruled at the time when Israel was at its pinnacle. He was the wisest king who ever lived, given wisdom by God himself. He explores all kinds of knowledge and understanding. He imparts that knowledge and understanding. He teaches the people. He lives with incredible wealth and incredible prosperity. And the nation of Israel perhaps never sees this kind of prosperity ever again in its history before Jesus returns. Some have suggested in uh, the last few centuries of the church that this is not Solomon, but this is somebody who writes on behalf of Solomon a biographer, maybe written with the permission of Solomon from the vantage point of Solomon and describing things from Solomon because, listen, because everything that Solomon describes or everything that this book describes are things that somebody in a position of power alone could fully and truly experience, at least to its extreme degree. I believe that this is Solomon writing this book. 
And here he refers not to himself by name. In one sense, there is, while he describes his position, an aspect of humility that he begins with, he lumps himself, you see, in with everybody else. He says, yes, though uh, I was the king of Israel, I am just like all of you, pursuing the same ends, asking the same questions. I've got to figure this out just like every single other human being on the face of this planet. What's the point applies equally to him as much to him as it, must, as it does to us. And he begins with this arresting statement. If, if you want to grab somebody's attention in the middle of, at the beginning of writing a book, if you want to kind of lay the thesis out there at the beginning, I mean, just, just notice what he does here in verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. This is not beginning in a very hopeful way. This doesn't seem to be getting with any sense of encouragement or joy. All is vanity. This is the thesis of the book. And these 11 verses really are a kind of poem about the vanity of life. And the word vanity is notoriously difficult to define. It's used in in so many different ways. It's nuanced throughout scriptures in so many different ways. But since it shows up dozens of times throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, it is incredibly important for us to try to understand this multi-purpose metaphor for life. Now, when we hear the word vanity, oftentimes we think about good looks and how we present ourselves you know, or somebody being so vain. Listen, this word has, in one sense, nothing to do with mirrors and makeup and far more to do with the meaning of your life, the purpose of your existence. This word is really about making sense of the world we live in, of the confusion that exists around us, and and if we're honest, in our own hearts. It's about finding meaning in this world of chaos and confusion, and sooner or later, every one of us has the same experience We see around us things that are immensely confusing. We see beauty and tragedy often coexisting in the very same place. We see joy and pain meshed together. We see life and death written on the same page. And the tension that we experience in this life as we look at the the confusion often produces a sort of frustration and vexation. It's often palpable because this all seems so out of our control. And in the end, the good news is it's all leveled out by death. Life seems like one gigantic contradiction like one massive paradox. We try to find the meaning of life through different means and various pursuits, but time and time again, it leaves us coming up empty, and if really we dig in deeply, we end up emptier than we were before. We indulge in certain pleasures, only to end up more dissatisfied than before. Or we are unhappy because we feel that we will never do anything important or be anybody significant or special. The word vanity comes to express really this sense, as you look at kind of the multifaceted use, you can kind of boil it down to this idea of absurdity, futility, and especially futility as the author uses it here, as the preacher uses it here, futility and absurdity in a fallen world, in the context of a world that's broken by sin. 
You see, to use the word vanity like this is to say that our brief lives are marked in many ways by empty futility. And I want you to notice the vast scope of the claim that the preacher makes here. He says, all is vanity. Not just some things in life are vanity. All is vanity, he says. Every part of it, every aspect of it, it it ends in the same way. It's all empty and pointless. There's not one single aspect of human existence that is not frustrated by this kind of futility. It's helpful as we begin, you see, to look at this book, that there are echoes in this book of Eden. There there is a, a constant reminder that things are not the way they're supposed to be. There's a constant view of this world in the broken condition, cursed condition from humanity's fall into sin. The earth was once Edenic. Sinless and painless, good and right, there was peace and harmony, everything was as it was supposed to be. Now, all that is under the sun, as he'll use this phrase in just a moment, remains only a cursed shell of its former self. It's sad and needing recovery. And to prove this point, the preacher will take everything that people ordinarily use to give meaning or to find satisfaction in life, and then he'll show how empty it actually is. He will speak from observation, but more importantly, he will speak from experience. He will test all that the world has to offer, and he will tell by experience what it truly can produce. Because he had tried it all, listen, money, pleasure, knowledge, power, over and over again, he comes to this conclusion, what's the point? What's the point? And if it's not enough to provoke our hearts to ask that question, he just keeps moving and he begins to expand upon how life is meaningless. And one of the things he does next in our second point is he says, look at life is short. You want to talk about life being vanity? Life is short. The biggest vanity of all, the biggest emptiness found in all things is this idea of death. The emptiest of all futilities, you might say, is death in its dreadful finality. In verse 3, he says, what does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Why are you working so hard? Why are you spending yourself like that? I mean, what's the point? We're all going to end up going back to the dust, into the ground, six feet under. And the question he asks is arguably the most important question, and it really comes down to this idea of what's the point. He says, what does a man gain? Or what does a man profit? What is the actual benefit of all of this? This is the question that every one of us needs to ask about our lives. What is my life for? What's the point? And here he uses that phrase, under the sun. This is again is a repeated phrase or refrain throughout this book and here's essentially what that means. You see, he's viewing everything, everything in life, restricting his observations to what can be seen in the natural world while we are here. In this place, at this time, during our existence, 
What gain can we have here under the sun? In other words, if you remove God from the equation, if that's all we're looking at in our lives, God out of the picture, if that's all there is, And the answer he comes to is not only is it all meaningless, it's really short. It's a little blip on the radar screen. There's a song that uses these words to describe the passing of time for all of us and the realization of how short time is. The lyric goes like this, time slips through our fingers like sand. Once it's gone, you can't get it back again. You talk to anybody who's a little bit older in life and they'll tell you, man, it feels like I blinked and it's over. I can't believe how quickly my kids grow up. I mean, we're out here, like that's a common statement, right? Like they're getting so big. Yeah. It happens all so fast. And the older you get, the faster it seems to go. There's this relentless pace of life and the end is drawing near, sadly, listen, and in reality for every single one of us. The time we have between our birth and our death is not nearly as long as we think it is, is it? In fact, the word vanity carries the idea of it being like a vapor. Life is like a vapor or smoke. It's a breath, right? It's here in one moment and gone the next, and it's elusive. The moment you try to grab hold of it, it's gone. We breathe in. and we breathe out. That's what life feels like. This past week, we were doing some family things around uh, um, New Year's Day, and we always go to Sarah's family's house, and a lot of her extended family showed up, and one of her aunts, um, um, who's a lot older than I am, but I hadn't seen her in a handful of years. And we walk in the door, and, uh, and it's great. It's all cheerful. And she just she gives me this big hug, and she pushes me back. And she goes, Ian, it's so good to see you. It's been way too long. And she says, wow, you look. And at this point, I'm expecting like, man, pretty good. Quite handsome. Wow, Ian, you look mature. <laughs> to which I said, God bless you. <laughs> and then I, I told her, listen, that in the ministry, we actually measure our years in dog years. So actually for 90, I look pretty good, okay? None of us are getting any younger. And this is why in Psalm 90, verse 10, it says this, the years of our life is what Moses writes, are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. I recognize this idea too, standing a couple years ago in Israel, you know, where there's excavations happening all, of the, all over the place, archaeological digs, and you're standing on the ruins, and it strikes you that ruins are thousands of years old, and, and here people once lived, but if you asked me any of their names, we see scraps of what others have left behind. But everything is fading. 
Monuments of men last only for a moment. I mean, you can just think about this even in your own lifetime. I mean, the reality is, and some of you are maybe a little further down the road in life, and they just think for a moment about your, your favorite band or your favorite movie when you were younger or maybe your favorite actor. I mean, they go to the kids right now in, uh, in our children's program and ask them if they know who James Dean was. I mean, I don't even know who he was, okay? There, there are significant events that have happened in my lifetime that my own children look at, like 9-11. They had no experience. I can vividly remember where I was sitting and what I saw on the television screen and how, how really shattering it was to consider what I was seeing. And my kids will never experience that moment. They'll read about it in a textbook maybe, but guess what? They probably won't even care. It's amazing how quickly time is flying by. And whatever, listen, whatever we are reaching for or attaining to or striving at and even clutching in some way in this life, it will soon fade from memory, just like us. What is the gain in that, the preacher says? What's the gain? What's the point? And when we consider the brevity of our lives set against, listen, the millennia of the earth, that's what he does here, doesn't he? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever, From a a purely secular standpoint, God out of the picture, the earth appears to be here forever. It appears to be eternal. We know better, of course, according to scripture. But even in a temporal sense and in comparison to our human frail lives, how long really are we here? Except, of course, listen, we all get this, we all, we all see, listen, the earth is so much older than us, we're gonna fade from existence, but the problem is this, in everyday life we pretend that it isn't. We know it's true, but we believe that it's not. We live like it's not. We imagine that we actually will live forever, or at the very least, that someone else will get cancer and not us. Or we live like somebody else's child is gonna be sick or maybe even die, but not ours. We think our lives are built with granite, not sand. We pretend we're in control. We imagine that we can make a difference in the world and accomplish things of lasting significance. And that's what humanity has done over and over again. This is what they have tried to attain to. And this book sets out to demolish our pretense by confronting us with reality. It wants to pull us into what's actually true, not what we want to believe is true. It forces us to consider what it means to be alive in a world God made and called good, yet, which has also gone very wrong, often catastrophic and in confusing ways. See, this book is trying desperately to open our eyes to reality. What will you leave behind after all of your efforts and pursuing, after all of your work? I mean, what exactly will your legacy be? One thing, one thing. The earth you used to live on remaining right where it was when you first arrived, only it will keep spinning without you. You will come and go, and so will I. Life is short, the preacher says. Life is short, and the preacher forces us to ask again, what's the point then? What's the point? And if that's not enough, he throws some more into the mix for us to consider, to drive this question deep into our bones. He says this, look, life is meaningless, and life is short, and life is repetitive. Look at verses five through seven. 
He builds this out. He says, the sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. But to, uh, to the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. You see what he's doing here? He's like, look, this is the natural world. It's just this one giant cycle. The world is not linear, it's cyclical. It's the same things, over and over and over again, around and around and around it goes. It's the same as it always has been. And there's this threefold pattern of the world here that he uses to help us see a similar threefold pattern of human experience. He says, see, look, the sun chases its tail every day. The wind keeps winding around the earth and following its course. All that water, you know, all those streams, they keep on draining into the sea, but is the sea overflowing? No. It evaporates, it goes up in the clouds, it rains again, and it just keeps back, that cycle just over and over again. It's this relentless cycle that we see. It's like the circle of life, except sung way more depressingly. (laughs) And he says, look, the world is like this, and you need to understand that so too is your life. Life is cyclical, it's not linear. All of us at times feel kind of like a hamster on a wheel, right? We feel like we're on a treadmill, going fast but going nowhere. Like you could wake up every morning and hear the song, I Got You, Babe. Some of you got that. Some of you. It's Groundhog Day. Some of you are like, I don't. It's going to throw you off the whole summer if I don't tell you. Groundhog Day, Bill Murray, right? Every day the same. Every day you wake up, here we go again. And at the beginning, it seems so great, but in just a short period of time, it gets incredibly frustrating. The same old thing, the same old thing, this endless, repetitious cycle leaves us. Here's what happens. It leaves us, if we live this life and viewing this life strictly under the sun, unsatisfied, unsatiated, always wanting more, but never quite getting enough. I mean, so much potential for our lives, so many aspirations we believe, so many longings and even real achievements from an earthly standpoint, but the question remains, for what? Where's the progress? What's the point? And the more things change, the more they stay the same, or as we've kind of often say it in that kind of common cliche, history repeats itself. I mean, listen, as you're reading this right now, you probably can see that this seems awfully depressing, but you wouldn't want this preacher at your graduation ceremony from high school or college, right? I mean, the valedictorian's up there uh, telling everybody that they can do it and go conquer the world, change the world, and then the preacher gets up and says, yeah, I know that that's what they told you, but it's not true. Have a good night. I mean, you spend your whole life, right? Isn't this true? Just think about this for a moment. You spend your whole life working one job and then another job, or even worse, working the same job every single day. What do you gain for all your toil? Why am I sitting on this train again? Why am I dealing with this traffic one more morning, right? Ah, you're gonna lose your mind. Amen. 
well, what do you have to show for all the work that you do around the house, right? One more meal made, one more mess to clean up. Laundry put away, one more load to do. Just over and over. I mean, all, everybody's face like, yes, this is my life. But the cycles of the world and the cycles of our lives, they actually present as well a contrast that we need to consider, especially the cycles in the world, a contrast to to humanity. You see, part of this is understanding that there are certain things just in the natural world that we can be somewhat, again, God removed, Bible removed, that we can be certain of. We can be certain every day, you know, we're going to get up, the sun's going to rise, it's going to go down, and every day, I mean, all of these things are going to keep on happening, but there's one thing we cannot be certain of, that we will be there to see it. And there again, listen, is the reminder of what was supposed to be, but is no longer present. Humanity living in God's good world in the presence of the Almighty Creator forever and ever and ever. One of the earliest Church fathers commentating on this book wrote these words. His name is Jerome. He said, What is more vain than this vanity, that the earth which was made for humans stays, but humans themselves, the lords of the earth, suddenly dissolve into dust. The world is a very repetitive place, and so are our lives. Nothing ever changes. Constantly fed, but never filled. So what profit is there? What do we gain? Ultimately, again, it drives us to ask this question, what is the point? And if that's not enough, he continues to provoke our hearts and our minds, and he says, listen, not only is life repetitive, life is tiresome. In verses 8 and following, look at what he says, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. All of this endless pursuit is chasing our tail, never able to achieve anything of any lasting, truly lasting significance. And all it does is leaves us tired and weary Life is such a wearisome, toilsome trouble that it's even hard here, he says, to put into words. Searching for the next experience. Searching for something else to give meaning. And it's never enough. The same old things. You know, it's kind of like owning a season's pass to Canada's Wonderland or to the zoo, right? You get it and you're like, this is going to be awesome. We're going to go all the time. The kids are going to love it. I mean, the first time it's amazing. The second time it's really cool. By the third time, the kids are going like, what are we still doing here? Like, let's go look at the lions. No, I don't want to see the lions. Let's go home and watch Peppa Pig. Like, no, I don't like Peppa Pig anymore. I want to watch Octonauts. Sorry, this is just my life. I'm just... Relentless. Relentless. This isn't good enough anymore. This isn't good enough anymore. This isn't good enough anymore. Just more, 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 more. Different, different, different. Better, 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 better. But it leaves us in the exact same place. Doesn't work. Doesn't fill the void. 
And this is why we, we, we binge one show after another, right? All right, this one's gonna be great and it's over. Like, now what do I do? Hit play. Let's get another one going. And then another one going. This is like, this is the allure of social media. You can keep scrolling and scrolling and pinning and pinning and picture after picture and hours and hours. And at the end, it leaves you where you started. And all of it is a search for meaning. It is a search for significance and value. It is a search for purpose. I love that the contemporary English version of this verse, verse eight, says it like this. All of life is far more boring than words could ever say. <laughs> Enough said, let's pray. Okay. Like, like in reality, we're all like children two days after Christmas. And the preacher's perspective, look at this in verse nine, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. You see, we long to come across something in our lives that will break the constant repetitive cycle, the the wearisome monotony of our existence. Something to say or see or hear that will be truly new and therefore significant, that will keep us going in this life, that will elevate the excitement and joy we might be able to experience. And there may be a temporary taste of that, but there is nothing eternal within. And he doesn't mean here, by the way, that there are no new things ever invented in the world. That's clearly not true. He knows that. This preacher, if it is Solomon, invented plenty of things. That's clearly not true. He means here, listen, when he says, like, there's nothing new under the sun. What's been done back then, you know, what's done now has been done before. He means there's nothing new that we can discover that will ever break the cycle of tiresome repetition. In other words, this is always the way it's been. Humanity has always been on this pursuit, and it's nothing new, and nothing new will ever break this cycle. It will ever break the wearisome pursuit of true meaning. Go to the moon. Man's got to get to the moon. If we get to the moon, we'll accomplish something great. Got to the moon, stuck the flag in. Now what? Let's go to Mars. Uh, let's get a personal computer in every person's home. Bang, done it. Now what? Let's get one in everybody's hand. Climb Mount Everest. Now what? Oh, march across Antarctica. Do you see the point though? It doesn't matter how far you get ahead. I mean, the, the technological advancements don't matter in the end. At a foundational level, there's nothing new. Like, oh, look at these cool new tablets and phones. Listen, the pursuit of greater communication has always existed. The pursuit of efficiency has always been present. The next new thing is just a hand-me-down. Remember, listen, his aim is to show us that with all our toil, we gain nothing new under the sun. He says in verse 10, is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. If you're seeking to determine meaning through the exploration of 
human effort or invention or experience and achievement. Listen, this book is for you. And you want to know what the reality is? At some level, that's every single one of us. Life is an exercise in futility. That's what the preacher says. I'm going to prophesy here, okay? Just hold on to your seats. You can write this down. Check it later. In the future, along with joy and pleasure, there will be toil and tragedy and oppression. And there will certainly be death. You see, the costumes change, but the story remains the same. And if it ever seems like there really is something new under the sun, it's only because we've forgotten what happened before. Marcus Aurelius, the Socratic philosopher, wrote these words. He said, they that come after us will see nothing new, and they that went before us saw nothing more than we have seen. In verse 11, the preacher says, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. You want to know what the crazy reality is for every one of us? Chances are that in a hundred years, your own progeny will not even know your name. Just a few generations and you will be lost to time. What's the point? What's the point? Like, man, when I walked in the church this morning, I was happy. (laughs) I'm not sure I want to come back here. Well, what is the point, right? That's the question hopefully you're asking. And if that's the place you're at right now, good. That's the exact place that this text and the Spirit of God wants you to be in. Wants you to be asking this question, what is the point? What is the point? Quite honestly, if you truly want to live life, that's the question you must tackle to experience what God wants you to experience. So here's, here's the point, okay? We're working through the text, so you're saying, what is the point? I'm not gonna leave you in this place of pure despair and depression, okay? I want you to enjoy the rest of your day and the rest of your week, and I really do want you to come back next week. So what is the point? I've got three um, application points, if you will, or three truths that this passage wants to present to us, not just this passage, but the entirety of this book. And the first one is this, that contrary to how it appears right now, life is good. That's what the preacher in Ecclesiastes is wanting to actually put before us. And at this point, you begin to think that the preacher is some kind of a cynic and a skeptic. He's a killjoy and a pessimist, but that couldn't be further from what he truly is. You see, when the preacher opens his book, consider this for a moment, by saying that everything is meaningless, it helps us to remember that he is making a statement that is actually quite loaded with meaning. And when he declares that all is vanity, he's actually presuming to have stated a truth that is not in vain. You see, the difference between him and the skeptic or the pessimist is that he knows he's being contradictory. In fact, he's intentionally being contradictory. He's trying to drive not only the point home, but the answer home. 
In fact, he hopes that all of those who are reading or listening to him will actually take seriously what he is saying and that they will find meaning by considering all that he is saying. And they will actually, in turn, discover what is true about the way things are under the sun. You see, ultimately, the preacher wants to point out what is in vain in order for us to discover what is not. That's his goal. His point is not that life is bad. His point is that life is bad if you only view it from this position under the sun, God removed from the equation. But if you get this right, if you can understand the futility and the emptiness of that kind of perspective in life, then you can know with certainty and experience repeatedly that life is truly good. He wants us to have the right perspective on life that we might truly enjoy life. And what perspective is that? Here's the second truth. Life is God. Now careful, don't, don't, don't misunderstand me. By that I mean simply this, listen, God is life. Life is about God. Life is, is about living in God's world to God's glory, God's way. That's what life is truly about. I mean, I mean, life in the best sense of that word, to enjoy life truly, to experience it fully, is to live life with God and for God. He is the meaning of and the purpose of and the giver of. And this book is trying, as I said before, to jolt us out of fantasy land and pull us into reality. Now, it's really easy for every one of us to hear this question maybe this morning and to dull ourselves and prevent ourselves from actually wrestling with it. Many people go through life without actually dealing with this question. Listen, those who truly do apart from God often find themselves killing themselves. Most of us just dull ourselves to this truth, that, that life could be meaningless if there is no God, and if, if there's, this is all there is, and if nothing really matters, then what's the point? That's the, that's the logical conclusion. And here, we want to avoid dealing with it in our sinful flesh, and that's what Satan would love for us to do, but God wants to confront us with it. He wants to confront us with the truth so that when we try and look for and try to find satisfaction in anything else other than him, we're pulled back to this one simple reality. You can't have it apart from me. And this is not just referring, by the way, in one sense to life without God. This applies to those who have God. I mean, Solomon, the preacher, he had God in the picture when he was experimenting with all of these things. How easily, listen, how easily even those of us who know God and have chosen to follow him by faith, listen, can veer astray into sinless, pointless, meaningless pursuits. In Romans 8, 20 and 23, just consider this for a moment. Now this is the only place that the word vanity is used in the New Testament. The Greek word that is used when the Old Testament passage is interpreted for vanity, this is the only place in the New Testament that it is used. Listen to this, and Paul, Paul pulls this forward. He says, for the creation was subjected to futility. There it is right there, vanity, emptiness. Listen to this, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We live, even as followers of God, in a futile, meaningless world. And our bodies feel that. We groan in our spirits because things are not the way they are meant to be. They have been subjected to futility by the creator. In essence, what Paul is saying here and what the preacher is communicating throughout is that creation is unable to attain the end for which it is made. God gave it over to vanity. You say, why? Why would God do that? Listen, it was a judicial decision because of sin. Because of our sin. Not just Adam's sin, because of our sin. And now life is a breath, it's vapor, it's smoke, it's filled with futility, it's filled with pain and tragedy and sorrow and death, and the preacher's journey will be one of testing and trying all that the world has to offer. And his point is not that these things, listen, this is really important to see, his point is not that all of the things he's tried or tested, for the most part, are bad or wrong or sinful. They're just bad and wrong and sinful when they become an ultimate thing. When we seek our meaning and value and significance there. And his point is that they can actually be enjoyed. Listen, your life and these things can actually be enjoyed rightly if they are not the ultimate thing, but God is. And it takes to the end of the book to get that truth finally nailed down, just so you know. This is a spoiler alert, okay? He goes through this lengthy process, and at the very end of the book, the final words, just listen, listen, he says this, the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. In other words, listen, the whole point of your existence is to live not for yourself, but for the one who created you. In the end, it's about living under the sun while trusting and following the one who is above the sun. And the cosmic confusion in our lives and in the world around us, the vanity we see in life, it's a statement about our truest need to cause us to look to God, to look to God and find that finally, listen, life is grace. Life is grace. This is why we need to hear his preaching. Um, if we don't doubt the perspective of life without God, then we won't ever appreciate the truth of life with God. Reminding me of Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The preacher here pushes us to look beyond life under the sun. He paves the way. Listen, this whole book is paving the way for another preacher king who would come centuries later. One who can break the curse of futility and make all things new. This man, of course, is Jesus Christ. And Ecclesiastes, as Peter Kreef, the philosopher, has once said, Ecclesiastes is the question to which Christ is the answer. 
It helps us ask the right questions, the ones that we do often tend to avoid, and thereby sets us up for the hope that the rest of Scripture brings. Jesus himself said it, didn't he? For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but he forfeits his soul? You see, this book is calling us to put last things first. It's calling us to look at the end of our life and the one who is over our life so that we can properly live our life. That's the point. If there is vanity, listen, in what we live for, then we should be living for something else. We should be living for something so much better. And that life is all and only grace. God doesn't punish us for our sin immediately Instead, in grace and kindness, he allows us to experience, listen, the emptiness and futility of the world around us because he longs to draw us to himself through the free gift of Jesus Christ. By grace we are saved. By grace we can truly live. This is the message of Ecclesiastes. Last things first. From a biblical and eternal perspective, listen, as, as the preacher has mentioned even the final words, this idea of judgment, just consider this for a moment. From a biblical and eternal perspective, when we die, God will usher us into his presence. Then we shall all be held accountable for how we lived our lives, how we invested and how we enjoyed the life that he gave us. The question is this, in the end, will we have great regret for having squandered it or great joy for having maximized it to his glory. According to the gospel, something new has come under the sun. In history, real time in history, to change history forever, the God that we have all rebelled against in our sin has come into his world to save us from meaninglessness, from the futile, empty, vain life that we all have apart from him. By grace, the God who subjected the world to futility would subject himself to this world of futility as savior. And he did it all to redeem us from a life of vanity and judgment. He came that we might truly live. You see, through Christ, vanity will not have the final word. 